You're listening to Civic from the San Francisco Public Press. On this edition, Pandemic and Protest, How AIDS and LGBTQ Activism of the 1980s Can Inform the Present Moment. I think it's important to remember that the AIDS crisis was the intersection for many different social movements, whether it be individuals of color, whether it be access to health care, whether it be poverty, whether it be LGBT, whether it be uh, substance abuse. All of those different movements intersected in this one particular epidemic. We didn't need permission from anybody to do what was right. That's, that's the, the, the big lesson I would like younger people to understand is that when you're doing something that's the right thing to do, you don't need anybody's permission to do it. You just do it. I'm Mel Baker. This is Civic. This episode should be considered opinion and not the official views of either Civic or our parent organization, the San Francisco Public Press. History doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. While that quote may or may not have been written by Mark Twain, it certainly rings true at this moment in history as we compare the 1980s with 2020, times when an incompetent response to a pandemic and a minority's call for justice have brought people to the streets. I'm Civic producer Mel Baker, sitting in for Laura Wenis. On this edition, I'm offering a personal look back at the early days of the AIDS pandemic amid LGBTQ activism and what parts of that history rhyme with the current moment of pandemic and protest. A political system, a culture, and society in general resist change, but it is in times of crisis when the risks of change seem acceptable to growing numbers of people threatened by the circumstances of the moment. The coronavirus pandemic has reached a fearsome new number tonight, 100,000 lives lost in the United States. It is more than all the American dead in the Korean conflict and the Vietnam War combined. The narratives put forth by those in power are the place we can see resistance to change most clearly, and, over time, it's the place where we can gauge any change. When AIDS began killing Americans in the 1980s, this is what the Reagan administration's press secretary in the White House had to say in 1982 to a question about the government's response to the emerging AIDS pandemic. Thank you. 
And two years later, little had changed except for more homophobic jokes at the expense of the one White House reporter asking questions after 4,500 people were dead. Ronald Reagan himself didn't mention AIDS in public until 1985. Today, the latest person to hold that position of White House press secretary employs similar tactics to avoid addressing the COVID pandemic. President Trump declared himself the least racist person there is anywhere in the world. Why does he use racist phrases like the Kung Flu? Uh, the president doesn't. The, what the president does do is point to the fact that the origin of the virus is China. It's a fair thing to point out as China tries to ridiculously rewrite history, ridiculously blame the coronavirus on American soldiers. This is what China is trying to do. And what President Trump is saying, no, China, I will label this virus for its place of origin. That's what he's saying by using the racist phrase, Kung Flu? He is linking it to its place of origin. What does he have to and say to uh, Asian Americans who are deeply offended and worried that his use will lead to further attacks of discrimination? So the president has said very clearly, it's important that we totally protect our Asian community in the U.S. and all around the world. They're amazing people and the spreading of the virus is not their fault in any way, shape or form. They're working closely with us to get rid of it. We will prevail together. It's very important. So it's not a discussion about Asian Americans who the president values and prizes as citizens of this great country. It is an indictment of China for letting this virus get here. A minority locked out of political power has to look to change minds through other means. And one way is with feet on the street. It's still early days to see how the Black Lives Matter movement will continue to evolve in this time of crisis. So for the rest of this audio essay, I'd like to turn back the clock to the lessons that AIDS and LGBTQ activists learned in the 1980s amid pandemic and protest. They found that street activism had to be coupled with stories that created empathy within the greater population. Certainly the callous eight-minute-long murder of George Floyd on camera by a police officer while onlookers pleaded for his life has created that powerful moment of sympathy. It's possible that Black Lives Matter will find new symbols evolving over time 
including the remembrance of others who have been killed by police. For AIDS activists in the 1980s, the symbol that evoked compassion was the AIDS memorial quilt. Human rights activist Cleve Jones describes the moment of its creation during a memorial march for slain San Francisco supervisor Harvey Milk. This quilt came to being on November 27th, 1985, at our annual tribute in San Francisco to Harvey Milk and George Moscone, who, re who were so important to all of us in the Bay Area. They were murdered on November 27th, 1978, and every year we reenact the candlelight march that occurred that night. However, in 1985, the news had just come out that we in the Bay Area, particularly in Oakland and San Francisco, had already lost a thousand of our friends and neighbors to this new disease. I was overwhelmed by that statistic, and so many of those people were my closest friends and neighbors. It seemed to me like everybody I knew was going to die. And so that night at the annual tribute, I had Harvey Milk's old bullhorn, and we had some stacks of cardboard and magic markers, and we asked everybody to write the names of one person they knew who had been lost to this disease. At first, people were reluctant, and then finally they began to print those names, and we marched in silence with our candles down Market Street to City Hall. We filled Civic Center Plaza, and then I had everybody walk a couple blocks to the old federal building, and we'd hidden some shrubbery in the la some ladders in the shrubbery outside, and we climbed up with big rolls of tape on our wrists, and we covered that gray stone facade with the names of our dead. And as I looked at that, I thought to myself, it looks like some kind of strange quilt. And I thought of my grandma back in Bee Ridge, Indiana, and the quilts that she had sewn. One of them is on my bed tonight. And it was such a powerful symbol and such a warm, comforting, middle American, traditional family values sort of symbol. And I said, yes, that's, that's the symbol. And for a year I talked about it and everybody said it was the stupidest thing they'd ever heard of. And then I met Mike Smith, <laughs> who had a degree in business <laughs> from Stanford. And he knew how to make this happen. And we had our first uh, volunteer meeting. Uh, we put up posters everywhere. Only two people showed up. Jack Castor and Gert McMullen. And we lost Jack a long time ago, but Gert is still sewing. So, Gert, Mike, I love you both, thank you. Uh, Cleve gave that address in Washington, D.C. at the Library of Congress, which has accepted materials related to the quilt into its collection. For me, the story of the AIDS quilt is a very personal one. I first saw the quilt during its first display in 1987, during the March on Washington for Lesbian and Gay Rights, where I had worked as a volunteer, organizing media coverage of what was then the largest political show of force of LGBTQ people anywhere in the world. I was busy working on the march and only walked the edges of that first massive display of the quilt on the National Mall. I vividly recall wondering what my quilt would look like. What would my friends and loved ones put on my panel? For I was certain that just a few years after coming out of the closet, I too had become infected. In fact, I was right. Robert Handel. 
Robert Hatcher, Charles Hurst. The AIDS Memorial Quilt, under the banner of the Names Project, would return to Washington, D.C. again and again, growing in size throughout the 80s and the 90s, becoming a symbol of all those who died from a disease that government willfully ignored because its first American victims were a despised minority. The quilt was assembled in a storefront in the Castro, but was moved to Atlanta in 2001 when it became too expensive to house in the Bay Area during the dot-com boom. In February, the quilt returned home to the Bay Area. I visited the quilt's new home in a warehouse in San Leandro, now under the care of the AIDS Memorial Grove. John Cunningham, Executive Director of the National AIDS Memorial. Let's do a little walkthrough. So describe where we are, the warehouse, and uh, how we're being set up and what's going on right now. Yeah, so we are at the, uh, the new home um, of the AIDS Memorial Quilt. Uh, this has been about four months in, in getting set up and prepared. Uh, there are rolling rack shelf systems that uh, are in place that will help to preserve the quilt. We have uh, upgraded the system with melamine shelving and the beauty of these rolling racks is, is that it uh, saves on square footage and therefore it saves on, uh, on, on real estate rental. Um, the quilt will be, there will be uh, the nearly 6,000 panels, uh, blocks of quilt will be stored here um, and it will be the home base for the quilt uh, in perpetuity into the future. Uh, the quilt goes out from here on an ongoing basis around the country and will continue to expand that as we look to the future. Uh, the quilt itself is one of the greatest social justice teaching tools that's, uh, that's out there. You know, as we stand here right now, uh, we're observing uh, the next generation of young people uh, helping to, uh, to shelve the quilt. And I'm sure that they're feeling the power and the energy that is the quilt because remember, each one of these 12 by 12s has eight individual panels uh, memorializing the li life of a lost loved one. So we're here in a warehouse in San Leandro near the airport, near Oakland Airport. And you have a small area in the office area that has some parts of it, but there's not a place for people to come and see the quilt. How will you be able to bring the quilt to the new facility you're planning to build in Golden Gate Park. So as we look to the future, the National AIDS Memorial, as the, our nation's only memorial to HIV and AIDS, has long taken the responsibility that that uh, holds very seriously. Four or five years ago, we began a, to embark on a strategic planning process to look to the future. And we have identified uh, that we feel that the best way to ensure that the story of the epidemic uh, can be forever uh, memorialized and remembered is through the, the creation of a national center. Um, this is not a museum. This is an institute that would take the many lessons of the epidemic and ensure that young people and future movements will learn from the epidemic. I think it's important to remember that the AIDS crisis was the intersection for many different social movements, whether it be individuals of color, whether it be access to health care, whether it be poverty, whether it be LGBT, whether it be uh, substance abuse. All of those different movements intersected in this one particular epidemic. And uh, with that being the case, we feel that it is appropriate to take and to leverage the lessons of the epidemic 
uh, and to be able to uh, identify the best practices of social movements so that in the future, future social movements will not have to go through the, pain, the painful and arduous process that we did, which was trying to figure out how to get the attention of a nation and how to start to save people's lives. And so we feel that as the National AIDS Memorial, that will be critical. The fact that the quilt has come to us now uh, makes that, that responsibility doubly important. The quilt uh, will have as its final resting place the National Center uh, for Justice and Humanity, which is just a working title, but that's what we envision in the future so that the public can come and see it. Uh, the public can come here to visit the quilt here in San Leandro. If there is a loved one that uh, wants to uh, see a panel of, uh, that, was, that they perhaps made, they will be able to request that and they will be able to have it hanging uh, upon their arrival. The same would hold true as to what we are looking at for the future with the center. The center will house the quilt. Uh, you know, to build the center is five to seven years out. Uh, you know, so uh, we're sitting here with a five-year lease. So the opportunity would be that the quilt would would reside in the center. And you've actually have a parcel in Golden Gate Park that you're considering for this, correct? Uh, we're committed that the uh, that the center would need to be in close proximity to the National AIDS Memorial, and there is uh, a, a particular location in the park that we are considering. Uh, the last mayoral uh, election uh, with Mayor Breed, uh, Mark Leno, and Jane Kim, they were all interviewed on the record, and they supported the vision of creating a center and having it in close proximity to the memorial. Now let's talk about the AIDS Memorial a little bit. If you come to the Grove, what are you going to see? Walk, walk us through the Grove. 28 years ago when the vision of the memorial, or when ground broke, uh, it was obviously in the darkest days of the epidemic when so many were being lost. Um, the memorial is a 10-acre uh, dell, so it's a geographic dell or a bowl. Uh, when a visitor goes to the memorial, you go down inside. Uh, you very much are uh, transitioning away from the feeling of being in a city. Uh, you will come down into the memorial and you will come upon the circle of friends with thousands of names that are engraved. Uh, you will journey through this 10-acre uh, living memorial through redwood groves, babbling brooks, beautiful spaces to sit, large meadows. Um, Stephen Marcus, who was the visionary for the memorial, wanted to create a healing garden. There's so much power in nature and um, the, the Grove has availed itself to, to the commitment of healing, hope, and remembrance. So um, the visitors, you know, I encourage people to bring a picnic, to spend time, uh, to reflect, uh, to find hope, to find joy, uh, to find pain, um, because that is what the journey that we've all been on uh, over the last uh, near four decades of the epidemic. And let's make this a little more personal. How does it feel to have the quilt returned to the Bay Area? Well, I, I can remember vividly uh, when I lived in the Castro uh, at the time when the quilt was being uh, originally sewn together and created. And I remember going uh, to the space on Market Street and standing and listening to the hum of the sewing machines. Um, I've lost countless individuals personally. Uh, I'm a man living with AIDS. I've been living with AIDS now uh, for over 25 years. Um, to bring these two powerful symbols of humanity and the best of humanity that were born out of the worst of humanity, of a society and a government that chose through otherisms and stigma and prejudice and discrimination to not act, uh, but that a community stood up, rose up and made a difference, is powerful. 
Um, I cannot uh, stand here in this warehouse with these thousands of panels and not be profoundly moved. Um, truly, uh, I feel the chill. Uh, I feel the energy. I feel the spirit. I feel the responsibility. Uh, for that is what it is to be a member of humanity and, and to be a member of, of a community, is to look after each other. And I feel specifically proud to be uh, you know, an individual that has spent so much of his life in San Francisco because San Francisco has always taken that responsibility very seriously. That where there is, you know, it's the, it's the prayer of St. Francis. Where we see injustice, we seek justice. Uh, and that's what this is about. And I believe that San Francisco continues to have that responsibility and it will be born through the quilt. It will be born, continue to be born through the memorial and it will forever tell the story through the center. Part of the quilt was going to be displayed in Golden Gate Park near the AIDS Memorial Grove in April as part of the 150th anniversary of the park, but that has been delayed because of the COVID pandemic. During my visit to see the quilt in February before the pandemic, I spoke with Leslie Ewing, a member of the AIDS Memorial Board, about how she became involved with the quilt, her memories of its first display during the 1987 March on Washington for Lesbian and Gay Rights, and her hopes for future generations of activists. I've been involved with the quilt since 1987. And when, as it progressed, you know, we, the process of bringing it back home, I was uh, invited to be on the board. And I felt it, I, was, I had the capacity to do it. And I felt that it was important to have um, a physical linkage, per, you know, someone who had been with the quilt be on the board in a non-contractor non uh, relationship um, from a, a governance kind of uh, a relationship. And so that's why I'm here now. Talk to me a little bit about your uh, how you got involved with the quilt initially in 87. And, uh, well, they're all long stories and they're all personal stories. My um, girlfriend and I went to a meeting in Berkeley at the Pacific Center uh, that we thought was going to be about the 87 March. And we were interested in finding out things like free housing, you know, and stuff like that. And it turned out to be a civil disobedience training. And, pardon me, and four hours later we became members or set up with other people in what became an, an affinity group of ACT UP called Queer and Present Danger. And uh, we went to D.C. to get arrested at the Supreme so Court. So you, you were among the people that got arrested? Yes. The Supreme uh -huh. Court. Okay. And while we were there, well, actually flying on the plane, um, there was a group of people sitting next to us, and they were having a really good time, let's just say that, on the plane. And one of the people was making T-shirts with plain T-shirts and a felt-tip marker. And it turned out it was Gert, and they were having cocktails, and they were making Names Project T-shirts, and they were flying back to show the quilt. And my girlfriend and I, you know, did our thing without getting arrested, but we thought, when we came back to San Francisco, we thought... You know, this isn't, we're not done. And we want to be with people who are capable of living, fully living in, in the face of this epidemic. And so I, I walked into the, the workshop on Market Street and started working with a volunteer coordinator. And 
was involved from 87 to 93, where then, interestingly enough, in 93, I was one of the organizers of the 93 march. So kind of fast-forwarded a little bit. But I don't sew. I, I'm not... I've made a couple panels with, you know, uh, spray cans, spray paint, you know, kind of thing. What really intrigued me was being a, a member of a, of a civil disobedience group, you know, um, was kind of identified you as kind of one side of the fence. And, and being with a, the quilt was sort of the softer approach. And... The way I looked at it, and there weren't too many. There weren't too many. There was a lot of crossover, actually, people doing both. But the way I looked at it was that sometimes you just have to knock on the door and invite people to experience something for themselves, and they get it. And that's what the quilt does. You don't really have to do anything, especially when it's on the ground. When it's hanging on the walls, it's like a memorial and almost art, which it is. But when it's on the ground, you're walking through the graveyard. And it's a, a very different experience for people, um, you know, collectively and on a one-on-one basis. And, and, it, and it gets through to people in a way that a civil disobedience can't, because that's conf- confronting. On the other hand, sometimes you knock on the door and nobody answers, and they tell you to go screw yourself, and you do have to bang the door in. And so there, especially during the epidemic years, there was room and a need for both. Today we talk about all the assimilationists or the people who are straight acting or all that other stuff that, you know, we, that is thrown up to divide us. But the truth of it is, especially when you're fighting an epidemic, you need everybody, you know, whatever their skill is, whatever their, you know, whatever it is that they bring, bring to the table, there's room. You need everybody to jump in and help out. And that's been kind of the, the universal theme with this quilt is it invites everybody. What do you think the quilt has lessons for today for young people? Well, I was really delighted to see some young people here today um, who are going to volunteer, and, and um, they're, they get it. And uh, I think that they look probably look upon this quilt as more of a historical piece than, say, I do. Uh, but it shows, and, and with it being shown in Golden Gate Park in a permanent home and going out uh, more now. Um, it's a testament to um, how people can be resilient in what other people think is a hopeless situation. Without the quilt, without civil disobedience, without all these things collectively that went on in the 80s and 90s and especially, we wouldn't have the treatments we have today. There still wouldn't be a push for a cure rather than just treatments today. And I think that uh, for young people who are students, this is a tremendous testament to uh, what can be done. That What's interesting to me, too, and I'm a little older than a lot of the people that are, you know, the founders and stuff, um, although I was around, but I'm probably 10 years older than most of them. And what we forget is we, as we come here today, we're all in our 60s, I'm 71, um, is that when this started in, in, I think, 85 is when Cleve started cooking this up, um, people were 25, 27, or baristas, well, there were no baristas then, but what I'm saying is it worked you know, in retail or something like that. I mean, there wasn't um, an AIDS ink then. There wasn't uh, uh, 
LGBTQ careerism, you know, type thing going on. We didn't have a lot of community centers or any of them. There were some, but the people that were involved with this project initially were young enough to not be jaded and it didn't matter that they couldn't do it. They didn't, you know, they didn't have failure in their uh, resume yet. They just did it. We just did it. We didn't need a permit. We didn't need, I mean, we didn't need permits, but, but you know what I mean? We didn't need permission. We might have needed permits for D.C., and there's all, all kinds of stories. I don't know if you've heard about that, but, but we didn't need permission from anybody to do what was right. And that's that's the, the, the big lesson I would like younger people to understand is that when you're doing something that's the right thing to do, you don't need anybody's permission to do it. You just do it. If history doesn't, in fact, repeat itself, it is up to this generation of activists to find the rhyme that will give voice to this next period of change. I'm Mel Baker. This has been Civic.